the year of 2022, and this year, it's rather crucial, not only for a lot more countries in Europe, but also for one of the largest economies in the world, which is China. We know that this year, it marks the 10th year anniversary for Belt and Road Initiative. And of course, for this upcoming month, and the Chinese Communist Party is going to lay out more strategic plans, not only regarding some of the domestic affairs, but, inter but also regarding international relationship as well. But meanwhile, maybe something that you don't know, but let, let me remind you that in the year of 2022, that's actually also marks the 50th anniversary between China and Japan. Now, looking ahead, what should we understand regarding this bilateral ties between the two countries? And how about this political struggles and also this economic deadlock between the two countries as well? Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite Mr. Rintaro Nishimura. Rintaro is a first-year graduate student with the Asian Studies program at the Georgetown University Walsh School of Foreign Service. And he writes on international relations in Northeast Asia, mostly focusing on Japan foreign and security policies. And of course, his current research interests are focused on Japan's Indo-Pacific strategy and geoeconomics of the region. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Rintaro, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you, Will. Um, I'm very happy to be here. Happy to talk policy. Absolutely, the pleasure is all mine. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Now, let's go back to the beginning. As we mentioned before, this year marks the 50th anniversary between China and Japan. But let's bring back to the reality. Since the war broke out in Ukraine, Japanese government has been very strong on the condemnation towards the Russia government. But meanwhile, from the Chinese perspective, the attitude has been very strange or seemed to be quiet. Now, from your perspective, how do you think the war in Ukraine today actually help us to understand this bilateral relations between China and Japan? What is your take? Well, first of all, I would say that in terms of Japan's reaction to Russia, I think it was basically, originally it started a bit on the reluctant end of things, especially as the West kind of took off with the sanctions and the condemnations. Obviously, Japan has a, a very um, important economic stake in Russia, obviously with the um, LNG ex imports, especially in terms of energy, and just in terms of the investment that um, Prime Minister Abe started putting into Russian in turn the bilateral relations in terms of like the northern territories but as time has gone on obviously the aggression towards Ukraine has been undeniably a very uh, violent act of aggression that violates international law and norms and so I think Japan has to has had to take a very strong stance against that and as a member of the G7 obviously we stand in unison with every other country that is in the in the group and in terms of Japan-China relations. I think this, this is a lot of things have been said about the the correlation between Japan, Russia, or sort of the reaction to Russia versus the reaction we would have towards China in the case of let's say a Taiwan Strait crisis or something mm. happens. I think the reaction will be not as not exactly the same in terms of just the stakes that are involved. And first of all, Japan obviously is geographically very close to China, and so the the stakes politically and security-wise, and even economically, really, 
are higher than what we see from right now in the Russia situation. And in terms of just the world being economically intertwined more, much more closely to China in terms of trade and in terms of just sheer economic dependence on certain materials and imports, I think that there will be a different sort of relationship or sort of reaction to whatever happens in the future in terms of what happens in China. You know, Rintaro, you brought up so many significant points, but I think it's important that we need to talk step by step. Now, let's talk <laughs> about these economic factors. Throughout the pandemic, that I think it serves as a wake-up call for the world to, to understand how significant and how important for every single country to collaborate together, not only to fight against the pandemic, but also really to recharge itself or to recharge the world in order to increase these economic bubbles. But meanwhile, we know that on one hand, in China, the economic situation has not been very positive, you know, given the fact this uh, zero COVID policy and also this aging population. And of course, that today the labor markets are also facing greater challenges. But also in Japan at the same time that we don't see any positive signs regarding this economic uh, uh, situation. So my next question to you is, once we get into the relationship between Japan and China, very likely that people are focusing on this political division or in this political disentanglement. Now, help us to understand how should these countries work together at this moment in order to push or to promote much greater economic interest? And how much do you think that really matters today when we look at these political differences between the two countries? Yeah, um, so as you said, I think that a lot of the politics comes first in terms of like the headlines and just the debates on how we should deal with China. Obviously, all of that comes first. And I think the Nikkei wrote a very good piece, it aptly stated that Japan-China relations in an, is in an era of cold peace. Basically, we don't have a lot of communication in terms of, you know, there is relative peace, that, that there isn't a direct conflict between the two countries, but obviously not. it's not all rosy. And so I think that was a very good way of putting the, the relationship we are in right now. And in terms of what you said, I think politically, this is a very, you know, a very contentious issue in terms of how to deal with um, China. I think there are two sides basically in the country. I think there's the one side that says we ought, we need to, to bolster our ties with China in terms of the growth, the, the sort of potential that there is in terms of cooperation and in terms of making it's making sure that china is sort of tied into the global economy to make sure that when in a, in something does end up happening in the future there's less risk of you know something blowing up and the whole economy just disintegrating to, to keeping them in the in the global economy sort of like the economic interdependence theory basically and i think uh, an example of that was um, last week the the largest business federation in Japan, the Japan Federation, uh, Business Federation, the Keidanren, uh, the president of that Keidanren basically met with the premier, Chinese China's premier. Mm. And I think that was the first time since 2014 that they had met. And so I think like the, obviously the business side, I think sees things differently compared to like the political side where we understand the potential there is in working with China and the importance of working with China. But I think at, at the same time, the political side, there's also that concern about you know, the, 
the way in which China is operating its trade relations or its economy. I think there are concerns about how Japan can sort of deal with those aspects while also having prosperous relations. So I think there's like a, a very difficult relationship to maneuver here. I think you're right, because when we are looking at this economic perspectives or economic opportunities and a lot more business, especially the small business owners, they're actively seeking ways to engage not only with domestic audience, but also internationals. Again, I think that also takes place in the country of Japan as well. You know, even though in on the service level that we could say political disentanglement only could last for a certain period, but for the bigger picture, I think people are looking for the long-term sustainability. But meanwhile, let's go back to what we talked about before. How much do you think that today that two countries, especially from this perspective of both leaders, are willing to put the political differences on the side and uh, instead let's focus on this greater picture, or which is the economic collaboration? And keep in mind, we're going to bring the U.S. into the conversation in a second because we know that today China is growing rapidly despite this slowness that we see because of the pandemic. But meanwhile, Japan is also gearing up and for the for the next move or for the next strategy. I, you know, uh, uh, I want to be careful. I do want to say these two are actually competing with each other. But if we take a much deeper look, this economic competitiveness, it's not going away soon. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think economic competitiveness is actually something that we should strive for. I mean, it's something that we need to in order to grow. You can't just grow out of, you know, non-competition, just being stagnant. And I think in the Japanese side, at least, um, there's been stagnant growth pretty much for I don't know how many years now. But obviously, there's a need to change economic strategies. And I think Prime Minister Kishida is focusing on um, helping startups, you know, help trying to transition the economy into like a digital and green economy, trying to be I think he said it was like sustainable growth. And, and I think that's, that's the way to go in terms of in, being innovative and also looking into like the new sectors that are obviously going to start growing as technologies come out. And I think that is something, an area in which Japan and China and possibly the United States, maybe not in the trilateral setting, but as a global economy, I think we can all work on is to, to move towards uh, a sustainable economy where everyone is able to grow and to develop things without having to, you know, put all these political shenanigans into the picture. But obviously, it's not going to end up being all rosy and all happy like that. There's going to be competition that inevitably, inevitably will include security concerns, especially in terms of like economic security. You know, just with like the semiconductors. Obviously, these things are very important to like cars, a lot of things, even phones and whatnot. But obviously, it's become a political issue in terms of, you know, Taiwan controlling a majority, I think like 90% of semiconductor supply. Mm. And the fact that China and the United States and Japan, all of these countries are kind of competing to either play in this game with Taiwan or kind of utilize that technology to then bring them back into their countries and to produce them inside their countries. So I think like there's a movement of global, you know, trying to get everyone into the picture, but also where everybody is sort of trying to push back into their domestic spheres and trying to, you know, compete and grow within. And I think that might be a, not a problem, but it will lead to more competitiveness. 
Rintaro, I want to talk about, again, this really falls into your research as well, regarding the keyword is called Indo-Pacific strategy. And we know that today, US and Japan, India, of course, uh, and uh, um, Australia, that really form this quad relationship. And of course, that uh, uh, under Joe Biden, or even under this previous predecessors, that this Indo-Pacific strategy drew this attention, not only across the continent, but especially for China. Chinese government has been very critical and also very harsh towards this quad relationship. Not only that China sees this quad relationship, it's economic threat to China, but also it's actually taking advantage in a much greater way. So from your perspective, the next question I want to ask is, what does Japan or the Japanese government gain in order to continue to support or place the role under this Indo-Pacific strategy? Because given the fact a lot more political scientists believe that Joe Biden or however the American government represents seem to painting a very ambiguous picture for this Indo-Pacific alliance. And what do you think? Um, I think Japan has been like the the top player in terms of ambiguous strategy. I think um, when Prime Minister Abe came up with uh, the free and open Indo-Pacific, which was sort of the idea that there would be free trade and open seas and whatnot, I think the, the a lot of the scholarship said that it was a anti-China, sort of countering China's influence in the region. But I don't think he ever mentioned China specifically. I think that's the thing about Japan's foreign policy and security policy, especially today, even with the Quad. I don't think there's ever a specific mention of China or or the specific mention of China's like activities. I think it's always phrased in a way like the South China Sea, concerns about ac military activities in South China Sea or peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. It never specifically explicitly mentions China, which I think is the beauty of what Japan has been doing for the past mm. uh, 50 years, actually, is that they've never actually gone to really hone in on trying to criticize China on anything in Obviously, I think there is concern with what China has been doing. I think in February, there was a diet resolution that came out about the, the Xinjiang region and the, the treatment of Uyghurs. Obviously, that is a human rights issue. I think a lot of lawmakers will agree on that point. But the, the fact of the matter was that the, the resolution was it didn't mention China. It, it said that there was concern, serious concern about the human rights situation, but it never mentions China. And I think that's part of what has allowed Japan to sort of play a different role in this sort of regional politics while the US and China are sort of at, at a let's say a cold war mm. and Japan gets to play this third party that isn't that has a very robust relationship with the United States but also understands the value in working with China on areas that they can work on with and so I think there's like this game where there's an ambiguous line where we would like to work with China, but we will condemn parts of it without actually naming things that are, you know, problematic with what China is doing today. You know, um, Ritaro, the next question might sound silly, but I want to ask on behalf of our viewers and audience, when we talk about this economic interest, again, today, I think fewer and fewer leaders are actually interested in building or solidifying this political power. But again, because the pandemic that really woke up everybody to understand we need the economy going forward. Now, putting on that, putting that card on the table, 
which one it's more reliable which one is more trustworthy is it us or is it china for to help japan to boost this economic bubbles for the bigger picture because we know that today you know again uh, a sitting u.s president joe biden that actually traveled to japan not too long ago you know we saw uh, both kashida and uh, uh, joe biden appear at the conference of course they seem very confident and they share a lot more information but meanwhile, that at this moment, domestically speaking, this economic situation in the U.S. it's in turmoil, and either we, whether you agree with me or not. But again, which one do you think it's more reliable in terms of working, not just for the short-term period, but we need to see something that happens immediately, but also that could lead to something much greater for Japan. Is it China or U.S.? And how should we analyze that? Yeah, I mean, I think in the ideal world, we would say that obviously working with China is very beneficial to the Japanese economy. I think we are very, I think we're top trade partners still. I think the United States was overtaken by China in terms of top trading partners and with Japan. So obviously there is an economic stake and you can see that all the business actors and many of the economic actors in Japan actually, I think, still want to continue close relations with china i think there was the point where there was a discussion about decoupling during um, the u.s china trade war and that was very negatively taken by the business community and obviously that's more political than economic and i think in the ideal world we if we are to value just just simply economics and i think i think china does provide a potential for japan to keep on and even grow more but I think we have to keep in mind that there are obviously there are security concerns. And I think this it was last year that Japan signed the economic the, pro, the act promoting economic security. And without again, without really saying that it's targeting China, I think a lot of those provisions were targeting China in the sense that w one of the pillars of that act was um, about research in critical technologies, let's say like AI or um, I think. Oh, yeah, semiconductors and, and all these things that in the future will become very important drivers of growth in Japan and in the world, frankly. And I think that one of the points that was raised during this conversation was that research in Japan gets leaked a lot because of the, the lack of security and the, the, the sort of the confidentiality that exists in Japan. And without really explicitly saying it was China, I believe most of it is in relation to how Chinese students or people who come into the country under the guise of research can kind of take information out of Japanese research in these critical sectors and sort of take them in back to their country and basically utilize that information. And so I think there's always that concern that economics is now more intertwined with security. And so I think it's not as simple as just saying, I think we can have better relations with China and that that will help Japan grow. I think there's always going to be that security aspect where I think Japan and the United States and, you know, frankly, the Quad and even probably South Korea and other countries will want to work more with China, but they see the, the risk in doing that in terms of just security concerns. And also if the government ends up doing taking measures against China, not as probably as harsh as Russia, but if they do do that, then obviously business will there will be uncertainty in business practice. And so I think there will be risk in actually taking more of a, a stronger business ties with the Chinese businesses. And so I think 
in the ideal world, yes, China. But I think at the moment, it's still looking like the United States and their partners, the alliance partners, will be more closely knit together, sort of in a not explicitly against China, but a, a world where China is still a competitor more than like a, a partner or a, a potential partner. Wintaro, I want to talk about something domestic in Japan these days. Again, the came,、uh, the report came out that the Japanese government decided that after October the eleventh, this policy for international travelers are able to return to Japan again for various reasons. You know, I guess one of the major uh, uh, um, motivation behind the decision is actually actually to reboost. This economic situation, in Japan. Now, everyone is very concerned about this pandemic, and given the fact that a lot more countries are still undergoing this pandemic battle, I want to get your reaction on this. Is how risky do you think to, uh, uh, for the Japanese government to make the announcement that opening up the doors for international travelers? That's number one. Number two. Is this a desperate, a desperate measure for the Japanese government to seeking ways for this economic boost? What's your reaction on those? Yeah, I think on the first part,、um, well, I guess why Japan decided to do that, whether it's risky. I think it was long overdue in a sense. Maybe not completely opening, but Japan has been one of the slower countries to open up their borders.、Um, I think. For a while, we've been said we've been told that in the G7 at least, Japan has been the low, the slowest in opening up their borders, and I would say that that's true. It's it's only been、uh, group tours, and、um, I think students were let in finally, and I forget. I think it was like only a few months ago, probably.、Mm. And as a as an international student coming to the United States, it was kind of a, a weird experience where I would be allowed to go into other countries, but coming back, I would be the only one. Able to come back. Some of my friends who are、uh, who are from the United States couldn't come to Japan for work or for just to visit because of the the restrictions that were placed. And a lot of people that I've talked to or have read about have really tried to petition the government to really open up the borders. Not just because that's something that other countries are doing, but also because it, it just like closing off the economy is. Well, first of all, it's not very. Positive thing in terms of like trade and just in terms in general terms of having people doing business in Japan, but also the fact that we don't have exchanges with other countries. Like in terms of students too, I think closing the borders was a smart decision at first because of you know we didn't know what the pandemic was like. But at this、right. point, I think we have a general idea of what the spread is going to be like, and we have measures in place to control it at least. And so I think. The value of opening the border is obviously not just getting more tourists back into the country, but also allowing these students and these researchers and people to come in and actually work on Japan and work with Japan. I think will open up more、um, potential for growth and also just for promoting our culture and our our、um, strengths abroad. And in terms of your second point, I think that well, first of all, in terms of like. Is this like a desperate move? I think it's. It might not be desperate, but I think it's making use of the current situation that Japan, for one, is obviously not growing as much as it wants to, and two,、mm. the yen is very weak against the dollar. And 
I don't know if you've read up on this, but last week the the government and the Bank of Japan had to intervene in the foreign foreign exchange market to to t- to stop the yen from weakening further. It went to uh, I think 145 yen to the dollar, which is mm. in my day in my short life it's been I think one of the the worst. I think it's been the worst exchange rate in I think 24 mm. years or something, and so. I think a lot of the government and business leaders have been saying that this is the time to really capitalize on the weekend. It's bad for people like me who are studying in foreign countries where only a, you, you basically don't get as much foreign currency out of the yen. But for foreigners who are coming into Japan, you get 145 yen for a dollar, which is a good deal for you know buying things in Japan with your foreign currency. And so I think the government is trying to make use of that. And actually, the prime minister actually said that last week. I think that we need to utilize the fact that the yen is weak and make sure that by opening up to tourists and people buying things with their foreign currency, it actually helps the Japanese economy grow. But as you said, I don't think it's like a sustainable thing. So tourism is a big industry in Japan, but it's not something that we should be relying on for long-term growth. It's more of like a, I think, a stopgap measure that and a, a sort of a, a solid. Foundation for growth, but it isn't like the the long growing sort of industry, and so I think it's in a sense a measure to temporarily bring Japan back to its feet, and then on top of that, you know, digitization, green transformation, and new technologies. I think that's where the real growth will happen. Rontaro, I know you're very busy. I got two more questions before letting you go. Yeah. Now, going back to the decision opening opening up the borders. Uh, uh, from the Japanese government side. Now, how much do you think that really helps with the current leader today? So, in other words, not only that the government is dealing with the pandemic, and also the leader has to make the tough decisions regarding this economic boost. But meanwhile, for international relations and international interests. So, again, putting all the decisions together, how would you evaluate or how should we assess the political performance? For current leader in Japanese government today, yeah, um, I would say that at the current moment, Prime Minister Kishida is not in a very good position. I would say just based on, and this is just based on approval ratings at the moment. His approval ratings have, I think, been the worst since he came into power last year, and I think part of that is the economic side of the, the just the pandemic has really hit hard and. I would also add that the, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine has also really amped up um, energy prices,、mm-hmm. which then in turn amp up prices for goods that utilize these energy thing,、uh, energy commodities, and so living costs have also gone up without much、um, you know a response from the government. And also the yen is weak, and so there's there's a whole lot of factors that are really impacting Japan's economy and the the daily lives of. Of consumers, and you know, prices are going up for most commodities. So that's obviously a concern. And the government has said that they would issue an economic package next month, but obviously, that we don't know what it's going to be like. The government hasn't been very good in terms of the economic policy that they have pushed out to fight inflation. Inflation is still very high,、uh, but in terms of the political side, there's also the problem of the unification church. The LDP's connections to the Unification Church, which have sort of really skyrocketed or really come out into the open after Prime Minister Abe's assassination, and even to yesterday, the the state funeral. During the state funeral, there was a demonstration against the state funeral, 
over you know the controversy Abe being a controversial figure mm. and the fact that the LDP kind of forced the state funeral against the people's will, if you will, and so the the connection between that and economy and the Unification Church, which is uh, an organization that is not well perceived in society, and the ties between the ruling government or the ruling government's party with that organization and the electoral co- cooperation that seems to have happened between them. I think a lot of things are working against the Kishida government. And I think his hope is that his economic policy, which he did announce at the New York Stock Exchange when he was here in New York for the General Assembly, he did mention his new capitalism idea, which I, I think his hope is that, that once that's in place and that gets on a roll, I think he hopes that the economic policy will kind of cushion what's happened so far and, and sort of pushes approval back up. But at the moment, I don't think he's in a very good position. And I think he's hoping that his work on the economy and I think on foreign policy and defense, frankly, I think raising the defense budget, I think all these things are things that in the midterm to long term will is he's, he's hoping that that works out in his favor. I want to wrap up our conversation by going back again something that very crucial, but also it matters not only to uh, the people in the U.S. and China, but also matters the most to the people in Japan, which is the word democracy. You know, some people says not too long ago that say our democracy today across the continent is actually in big trouble. Not only that we are a democracy or this this democratic system is being challenged by a lot more social unrests and also political distance. Of course, that mainly regarding this economic equality. Now, for our audience and viewers that I want you to help us to understand today in Japan, what does that mean when we say to preserve the democracy or this democratic system in Japan today? Is it just more than political equality, economic interest, or social harmony? Or is there anything behind all those above the elements? So in other words, how should we understand the word democracy under today's context in Japan? What do you think? Yeah, um, I think democracy is obviously a very, uh, it's one of the core values of Japan's, at least what the government is hoping is a core value of Japan. And, and I think in terms of democracy in Japan, it's it's obviously the right to vote, it's the right to, to freedom of speech, the freedom of press, and all these things that are enshrined in the constitution and, abroad, and in terms of just normative laws or norms internationally. And I think in terms of democracy in Japan, I think it's in a, a better position than most countries, I would say. Um, obviously, a, a current example of the state funeral kind of being forced on to people, I think that some will argue that that is against democracy and that at times the Japanese government kind of does things that are undemocratic in the sense that, you know, it's not in the the majorities doesn't agree with that. but. I think there is no like oppression that you see in countries like Myanmar or mm. frankly even in China or these other countries where there are minorities who are being oppressed or there are certain groups of people who are not allowed the freedoms that we are allowed in our country. And in that sense, I think we are a democracy and, and there's an active promotion of democracy by the government inside and, and I think frankly more outside of the country when it comes to, you know, the G7s, the, 
international forums elsewhere where Japan is really promoting the idea of democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. And I think that that is a very important value that Japan holds dear. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking to Rintaro Nishimura. And Rintaro is a first year graduate student with the Asian Study Program at Georgetown's University. And of course, that his current research interests are focused on Japan's Indo Pacific strategy and also this geoeconomics of the region. Again, Rintaro, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show. It's been a pleasure of speaking to you, and we'd love to have you back on the show as we continue to monitor. And follow this political, economic, and social changes, not only Japan, but also across the world. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you.